everyone. Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. It's the week of February 14th, 2022, and we are back with another deep dive episode. Helped along in no small part by mega online retailers like Amazon, consumers today have been conditioned to expect that they can get pretty much whatever they want, wherever they want, and not just in one or two days time, but often within a few hours, all without leaving the comfort of their own home. But US cycling apparel brand Kitspo is doing things in a decidedly different way. I mean, yes, you can still order their stuff off of their website, just as with so many other clothing brands, but the promised delivery windows almost seem like a throwback. The most readily available items won't even go out the door for one or two business days, and that's only for a handful of Kitspo's collection. The rest? I'm typically looking at wait times measured in weeks. Now, that may seem nuts, but yet that's entirely by design and it's baked directly into the company's business model. Surely there has to be a good reason for this, right? Well, to find out, we have on today's Nerd Alert episode, the CEO of Kitspo, David Bilstrom. David, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, before we get too into the weeds on, on what on-demand manufacturing is or what exactly you all are doing there, can you tell us a little bit about Kitspo, I guess the, the brand and the company for those listeners who might not be familiar with the brand? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, so Kitspo is uh, just a hair over 10 years old, and it was founded in Northern California, uh, more specifically the North Bay, by Xander Nosler. And uh, Xander is a successful serial entrepreneur. It was founded to create truly awesome, uh, stylish, but durable clothes for mountain biking specifically that were high performance. And at the time, so this is 2012, um, at the time, there were no real options in mountain biking. There were for road with Rafa, but there really wasn't anything for mountain biking. And um, uh, the company has been growing all of these years, and it's still a fairly small brand, um, but we like to think it has a pretty big footprint. And we moved the company in 2019 from California to North Carolina so that we could more than double down. So we could really start over on making all of the apparel ourselves instead of buying it from contract manufacturers in Vietnam, Canada, and a few in California. And that process meant going to a really a different economy than the Bay Area. Operating a factory in the Bay Area is pretty crazy. <laughs> I can imagine. So, yeah. Well, I guess we can start there. Um, just uh, Kitspo, I, I, like you said, you, you've been growing uh, basically since the company was founded. Um, and it is still fairly small. You have a fairly small catalog of offerings. Um, but what is very interesting is that, uh, well, I guess one of the things that's very interesting is that you do make uh, is it everything or I guess nearly everything in-house? Like, is there anything that you don't make in-house? Yeah, there's there's three styles out of 44 that are still made in California by contract manufacturers. Um, so all of the apparel is made in the U.S. So okay. the vast majority was made here in Old Fort, North Carolina, where I am right now. Um, and, and there's just three styles that we haven't quite converted, and we will sometime this year. Uh, we'll begin making those here in Old Fort as well. Cool. Um, we still buy um, custom um, merino socks from Italy, and we still buy custom. It's actually a collab with Mechanics Gloves. We still make uh, gloves in Vietnam. Okay. Um, those are two specialty items that we're unlikely to recreate um, really anywhere in America, let alone here at, in Old Fort. And we don't we don't consider them apparel per se. Right. So, um, yeah, it's, it's all here now and it's been a hell of a journey because 27 months ago, um, we were in Petaluma, California with about 15% of our revenue from clothes that we were making in Petaluma. We made about eight styles in Petaluma. So there's quite an accomplishment to be making clothes at all, let alone to go from eight styles to 44 styles in such a short period of time. Uh, oh yeah. And the pandemic. I was going to say there was, there was another little occurrence that uh, in the middle of all that, that may have thrown a, thrown a bit of a wrench into the works there. So the fact that you are making everything domestically is, is unusual in and of itself, but you all are going, 
I would say several steps even further than that, um, in the sense that uh, much of your items are are, are are I guess sewn on demand. I think is is how you how you described it. Um, in other words, being that you know you, you keep very few items that are on that, that are in stock and ready to ship at any given moment. Um, and most of the stuff that you can buy from Kitspo on the website isn't even made until the order is received. So how, what's the whole motivation behind why Kitspo has gone this way? There's multiple dimensions, but probably the most important one is we never trash clothes because they didn't sell. So unlike the rest of the apparel industry worldwide, we're not trashing clothes that didn't sell because we never made them. And the people who study this issue, and you can read about it in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Fortune Magazine, Financial Times, this is a secret hiding in plain sight. The people who study this say that somewhere between 30 and 40% of all the finished goods apparel worldwide goes to the landfill, never worn. That's insane. So we're not talking about fast fashion and stuff that was worn once or twice and then trashed. We're talking about stuff that's never been worn because... Uh, in a famous in a famous expose of Burberry of the Burberry coat brand, they burned their clothes rather than selling them at discount and having homeless people wear this famous brand. So um, it it is a terrible situation when you make product that people don't want to buy. It's bad for the business, it's bad for the consumer, and it's essentially bad for the for the planet. So. That's kind of where we start, which is we don't want to make any clothes that we have to discount because you're not going to see much Kitspo on discount. We don't want to have to discount it, and we certainly don't want to trash it, and we never have. So that's one of the motives. The second motive is that it, it, this is a little bit counterintuitive, but we can offer you more choice. If you need a 4XL or an extra, extra small for a tiny brand, with an embarrassingly small amount of revenue, we can offer that variety because we're not going to make 300 4XLs. We're going to make one or two, take photos, and wait for the orders. And when we get the orders, then we'll make it. So you get exactly what you want. And I'm sure you've had the experience. I know I have. Man, they don't have the XL. I wonder if I can squeeze into the L. And I talk myself into it. I buy it. I take it home and I never wear it because it makes me look like a sausage. <laughs> that didn't do anyone any good, right? Right. And, and women uh, who are looking for that small or that extra small because they're petite, when they compromise on that, they just end up not wearing the clothes. So you had, end up with a bigger closet full of stuff you never wear and eventually it goes somewhere and you've wasted your money. So you know, being able to get exactly what you want. So for instance, we just reintroduced our Haskell pants um, the Haskell pants were made in Vietnam. We would finish them in Petaluma. They sold out almost immediately. And when we moved to North Carolina, we had some of those pants in odd sizes still on hand two years later. That doesn't make any business sense. That's not a good use of cash. It didn't serve the customer. And I have personally heard from many customers who frustrated they couldn't buy more of the particular Haskell pant that they liked. So Today, we make the Haskell pant to order, so we offer 59 sizes of each of three colors. But we didn't make all those and stock them. We're going to make them when you want them. Right. It's just that you have the capability of making all those whenever you need to, right? That's right. So you can see this in subtle ways, and we probably don't brag on it enough. We just introduced our first tight, purpose-specific for women. It's in two lengths. The men are still stuck with one, one length. and per, I'm a per, big, One length per size, you mean? Right. And I, I'm a big guy, so you know my my kids bow tights bunch around my ankles because I need a bigger waist uh, than th I do the the length of the legs. But our women, because we're making that here, already have a choice. They can get a regular or they can get a short. And we may offer a third length in the tights. So it's this is the future. Um, so to talk about how that happens. How, is, how does the on-demand work? Uh, there again, it is, it is really a fundamental methodology ca called one-piece flow. Um, said another way, it means we make each item one at a time. And that means uh, if I go up to the production floor right now, I might see an extra small being made, and right behind it is a 4XL. 
And that is totally acceptable. In fact, that's kind of the point of one piece flow. When you manufacture in bulk, then you're going to have 300 smalls. And you're going to sew 300 left sleeves and then 300 right sleeves and so forth. But when you're making them one at a time, we can make an extra small and then we can make a 4XL. And then we can make the ever popular medium and another Hmm. medium and another medium. Or however many you need, I guess, based on however many orders you've received, right? That's right. Right now, we're, um, you know, the, the, the challenge with this methodology is it's new to sewing. It's new to apparel. The, we are not the only company doing it. American Giant also does it. Uh, there are a few other specialty apparel companies uh, that do it. But for the most part, everyone uses bulk manufacturing. And that's what leads to this situation where you've got clothes that haven't sold. Um, we have to train the people not only how to sew, because all the sewers in America uh, have aged out. Um, we're at year 35 since apparel was over. In the 70s, it was 80% of the clothes sold in America were made in America. Today, it's 2%. So we had to educate our workforce. We had to train our workforce. And we have trained them in this one-piece flow which you may also know as Toyota-style manufacturing, which, by the way, is how almost everything else is made in the consumer sector. The only things that aren't made this way um, are furniture and apparel. So it's, it, it's a new area, and we have to train folks and educate them. And as, as a consequence, we, our demand grows, and it is very difficult to hire enough people and train them to keep up with that demand. So today, if you order one of our Icon shirts, I just, I just looked at the dashboard a few minutes ago, it's going to be seven weeks before yours is made. Now, if you order almost any one of our other products, it'll be made in about two weeks, with the exception of those Haskell pants, which right now are also running in about seven weeks, maybe even eight. So that's, that is the disadvantage to this method, is our consumers are pretty frustrated because they have to wait. I think we're in year 21 of Amazon Prime, meaning there are, there are people who work at this company who have never not known overnight shipping of whatever they want. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's crazy to think about that. So clearly the, the motivation for, for going to this style of manufacturing is it seems like the, the benefits are pretty obvious. How, how did you end up deciding to go this route, though? Because it seems like there had to be some reason why you moved away from bulk manufacturing that you were doing before, right? Well, to be frank, uh, I would never work in, let alone invest in the apparel industry because of the bulk manufacturing craziness. It is gambling. Every brand that you know of is gambling. They have to guess at what is going to sell. How many 4XLs should they make? Should they make them in purple or blue or purple and blue? And those orders go in a year in advance. Sometimes there's an optimized supply chain and a long-running relationship between the contract factory in Vietnam or China and the brand. Um, I'm told that some of those orders can be as quick as six months. But this is one of the reasons why you see such crazy behavior in the marketplace right now, because every brand that has winter Um, apparel that's unsold is discounting it deeply right this second because it's already February and winter's already over in the retail world. So they've got to, they've got to get the cash back out of that inventory so that they can be ready to pay for their latest shipments for their spring. That's going to start arriving soon. So there's two things we're doing differently. One is we're we are refusing to participate in that bulk craziness placing those gambles and those bets. And we're also, um, we're also choosing to be a direct-to-consumer brand. And that means we're interacting with every single one of our customers directly. And while there is a delay as you wait for your stuff, um, you're not waiting for our spring. If you want to buy any of, our, any of our spring or summer items right now, you can place your order. We'll take it. So whereas those large, especially brick and mortar stores like REI, but also competitive cyclists in backcountry, they're waiting for their spring shipments so they can start offering them for sale. We can sell them year round Hmm. because there's no cost to having inventory because we don't have any inventory. We have to be sure to have the raw materials, but that's our only constraint. 
So what is what has been the traditional motivator to do the bulk manufacturing then? Has it essentially been cost? It's a great question. So right now, if you want to start your own apparel line, you could do like we're doing and and make your own stuff. There's no technical reason why you can't. Uh, you can buy the sewing machines. You can buy the raw material. You'll probably have to import most of it. But the real problem is you've got to teach yourself or your crew has got to teach, your, teach themselves how to manufacture in a modern era. And that's a pretty big lift. It's, I don't mind telling you, it's, it's been tough. And to do that while launching a new brand, while designing clothes that will sell, that's an awful lot of risk in a startup. So most brands are going to have to go offshore, and that's when they're going to find out that the tail is wagging the dog. So one way I explain it is um, my Lenovo laptop came to me at, at my house from Shenzhen, China. You can see it right on the FedEx label. So because it was $1,200 or $1,500, it made logistical sense to, to configure that for me in China and then send it point to point to my house. But that doesn't make any sense for clothes, even if it's a $270 Kitspo shirt. So all of those clothes are being shipped, and that means they're going across an ocean, which means the only thing that makes sense is bulk. So the shipping tail is wagging the dog. So if you're going to ship in bulk, that means obviously you got to manufacture in bulk. And when you go overseas, that means you can use a much lower labor cost. Right now, as a country painting with a broad brush, the best sewers in the world are in Vietnam. Um, I believe the statistic for 2019 is $2.19 an hour on average. Oof. Wow. So you're going to get very high quality clothes. We always did. And you're going to pay a pretty low price. So here in America, um, we're disrupting that. We're paying our loaded cost is of on average of our employees um, that are working on the floor is $21.50 an hour. And that includes the, the health benefits that we're very generous with. So we're looking at basically a 10x increase in labor cost on a per person basis. But because we're using the efficiency of the Toyota method, we are actually right now matching our labor costs on those, on those Haskell pants here in Old Fort, North Carolina for what we paid on our purchase orders in Vietnam four years ago. Interesting. I mean, I've, st I've talked to a lot of companies, a lot of other bike companies before about uh, domestic versus overseas manufacturing. And granted, this was for a lot of hard goods, but what I've, a consistent theme that I've heard over and over is that while things may seem very inexpensive to manufacture overseas, um, everyone keeps telling me that there are all these other hidden costs that often aren't accounted for or uh, kind of hidden complexities or things that they just don't expect that ultimately add to the bottom line. That's absolutely true. No, no, that's absolutely true. So I'm using funny math too. So I just told you that our labor costs are the same. Well, included in the labor price in Vietnam for the labor on those pants, um, they're amortizing the cost of designing the pants they're amortizing the cost of acquiring all the raw material, organizing it, storing it, having it ready for that bulk manufacture. And there's a lot of logistics going on in that factory, and that is included in that price. And I think it is fair for me to say, hey, if you're going to charge me $100 to assemble one pair of pants, and that's the price on the purchase order, and that's the price I paid you, that's our labor cost in Vietnam. But it is, it is hiding some portion of their overhead. And... Uh, profit to the factory owner. So back here in America, I'm spending that $100 and it's going all to the employee. We too have other overhead costs, including design. Most apparel brands don't really do the hard work of what's called product development. Um, they may do the initial design, uh, but they don't own their patterns in most cases. They certainly don't even have the cut files, which is what the... Um, automatic cutting machine uses from the pattern. So there's a lot of details that Kitspo is paying for here in Old Fort that's not included in that labor cost. So people sometimes ask me, you know, why are your clothes so expensive? I'm like, well, we're making them in America and we're paying fair wages and we don't have exploitive labor practices, but we're also doing all that design work. Um, and that's really baked into that price overseas. 
And as you mentioned, it isn't just the PO cost. There's the trip to Vietnam two or three or five times a year. There's the stuff that doesn't work out. Um, you know, at a certain point you approve and they make it and you bought it. <laughs> and, you know, if the cuffs aren't right or there was some language barrier that led to a product feature issue, that's on you. That's not on them. Right. And like you said, there's also just the time delay in general from when you place the order to when you actually are able to sell the product. And then there's also the fact that you are just guessing. Uh, I mean, maybe sometimes educated guessing, but you are essentially guessing as to what you are actually going to be able to sell and what people are going to want. Right. I'm not going to pick on any other brand. I mean, I wear a lot of the brands that 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 I pick on, but you can get on the Internet and check right now while I'm talking and you can go to basically any apparel brand in the world in the outdoor industry in the bike industry or in the in the general space. And what you will find is all kinds of product on sale. And the reason for that is that's part of the formula of that gamble. So I often simplistically describe this as I'm going to order 300 red shirts and 300 blue shirts because the absolute smallest quantity you can possibly order from Vietnam is going to be 300 per color. So I'm going to choose five sizes, not seven. That's why so much of our stuff you can't get an extra, extra small or a triple X because I'm going to own that stuff and I got to sell it. So I'm going to go for a smaller size run. And when it's out, too bad for you. Um, and when I get that order back that I, that I paid for a year in advance, when it finally arrives on our loading dock and we unpack it, we're going to put it up for sale. And what's going to happen is if it doesn't sell at list price, in about three weeks, we're going to discount it. So let's say the red shirts fly off the shelves. Bing, they're all gone or mostly gone. The blue shirts are, are selling more slowly. Who knows? Who cares? They're just not selling. So at three weeks, we're going to discount the blue shirts. Three weeks after that, we're going to discount them again. If they don't sell then, that's when we put them in the dumpster. Because the dumpster, the dumpster only costs $200 a month. And they come and haul it away. And by the point I've discounted it twice, I'm now below my cost. I can't put any more money into this failure, even to truck it across town to give it to the poor, who, by the way, don't really want it anyway. So it goes into the bin because I got to move on. That is the reality of apparel worldwide. But there's a double jeopardy, which is, remember the red shirts flew off the shelves? Mm -hmm. I got to wait nine months for that to restock. Right. So I can't double down on the winners. Now, kids must end this process. Um, you know, I imagine American Giant has the same challenges on raw material we do. We might not be able to get any more red raw material. So there are going to be some limitations. Um, but, you know, it, it takes us a while to use up the material we buy. So we've got plenty of warning on ordering more red. I mean, it does seem like there really are very few disadvantages to doing this just in terms of I guess in terms of all, you know, when you look at all the benefits that you have uh, from, oh, from making, making I, no, stuff I, on demand, but well, I, I was going to say disadvantages. But, well, oh, I, I was, no. I was just going to say, I mean, it, 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 it does seem like there are certainly an awful lot of motivations to go to this sort of, this sort of apparel manufacturing, but what, what are the real downsides that someone might not be thinking about? Well, Kitspo's, Kitspo's apparel, any of our customers can tell you, yeah, lasts a very long time. So we're using super high quality thread. We've put a lot of thought into the seams, all those little details that lead to the stuff lasting for more than a season. And we, we hear stories all the time about people wearing shorts twice a week on their ride uh, for five years. And, and that comes at a cost, right? So, you know, what if you're a starving college student and you just need a pair of shorts? Ah, we really can't help you, right? Because... Like we've looked at cost reduction and all it does is reduce durability. So, you know, we all know, you know, if you want quality, you got to pay for it. Right. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just a, it's almost a law of physics, but the issue there is that some people don't have that choice. So if you're an, if you're, uh, if your income is challenging what you can buy, uh, we really don't have a product for you. And I, you know, I think that's a, a pretty significant disadvantage because Increasingly, there are people who love the outdoors and are very constrained with their income. It's, it, it is a form of discrimination. So we don't have a solution for that. Um, you know, making it here uh, and making it durable is, 
is almost the very definition of making the expensive stuff. So uh, that's one disadvantage. The second disadvantage is, you know, there's no ecosystem. Well, that's overstating it. There's not much of an ecosystem here in the United States. We do buy our thread from about 60 miles from here. Um, and we do buy our compostable shipping packages about 40 miles from here. And we do have some fabric that are coming from mills here in the South. Uh, our icon uh, is made from Pendleton wool coming from mills in Oregon. But those are the best cases. And there's, there's just not a lot of mills left in the United States. There's not a lot of ecosystem to support manufacturing here. So uh, trying to source uh, the labels that go inside the clothes so they're soft but durable and will last five or six years without washing out in the wash. These are, these are all problems that stem from an ecosystem that's not been here. And the most obvious one is not only do we not have sewers that are trained, Vietnam has 4 million of them. We have like, I don't know, 40. Um, <laughs> right. Seriously. I mean, between us and American Giant. Um, and then uh, the sewing machine technicians, right? Everything that was connected with making apparel in America started ebbing in 1975 and it was basically gone by 1990. And those people are either retired or dead. So, it, oh my gosh, how do you scale this up? Well, that's another question I have as far as you said Kitsbo is continuing to grow. Um, but how do you how do you manage to maintain that growth if you I mean, hiring good people is always a challenge for any business. Um, yeah, we knew we'd have to train people to sell. Uh, we did that with our eyes open. We just didn't dream that it would take them between three and six months to operate on our most complicated products. Um, you know, the icon shirt, if you look at the detail and the seams, it's a Brooks Brothers shirt. It's a dress shirt that is more durable than a Brooks Brothers dress shirt. I mean, oh, I mean, these are these are skills. So um, what we're doing to do that is we're trying to grow consciously. You don't see us promising a 300% increase in in both product choice and uh, product capacity. We would never sign a deal with a distributor or a large retailer. That would be suicide. And we are launching our own uh, academy to teach sewing machine technicians and to teach sewing. And we are pursuing some public funding for that. But so far, Kitsbo has been paying for that. And um, there's, <laughs> there's no credential for skilled sewing machine operators in the United States, right? There is for electricians, plumbers. Not for sewing machine operators. So we're, we're at the basics at those building blocks. But we feel like that's a great investment because as we scale, we could make any apparel for anyone in the outdoor industry um, right here in Old Fort. It is, it is hard, but it is doable. We've proven it. So I want to come back to the, to the, the price and longevity thing in, in just a minute. But one thing that, that, that strikes me is the fact that the cycling apparel market is is notoriously competitive and it is certainly saturated with tons of brands and i can't tell you how often i get an email from some other new brand that i've never heard of saying that you know they they want to send samples they would love to get a review so on and so forth and, and invariably a few months or maybe a year or something down the road like there's just no sign of it to be found um, and i guess a lot of that has to do with the fact that as you said any company has to place a minimum with their manufacturers. They have to invest a lot of money. They're taking a gamble on quantities and styles and colors and that sort of thing. Um, but the, the uh, is another advantage of the on-demand manufacturing for Kitsbo is, is, is it also a way to also just differentiate Kitsbo as a brand compared to other, other apparel labels that are out there? Is it a way to just have Kitsbo stand out and just make people notice what you're doing? You know, it really wasn't chosen for that. Um, but that is an inevitable side effect. And we certainly embrace that. Um, you know, I, I cannot say that I'm pure. Um, I'm a nerd. And so I will buy technology that is not only made in China, but designed in China. But I don't like to. And almost everything else in my life, I'm trying to buy local. And I'm fine having fewer stuff. 
Um, our family has a has a Dodge Ram and a Honda <laughs> CRX. So I guess you know we've got one of each. Um, that Dodge Ram was mostly built in Mexico, but it's not a sense of nationalism on my part. It's just good common sense. It just I do not buy blueberries from Peru, even when I'm really jonesing for them at the grocery store. It just it just seems ridiculous to eat fruit that came from South America. Um, I'm not going to judge anybody else, but I'm going to make that choice. And increasingly, we we see that in our in our customers. They're making that choice. So coming back to that value and longevity thing, um, you were saying that one unfortunate outcome of this is that you really just you unfortunately just can't cater to to everybody. You just can't hit a price point that would allow more people to access Kitsbo clothing. But the flip side of that is essentially what you're what you're doing is you are you're making the argument that I guess by investing more upfront, you're ultimately spending less long term because you are buying fewer things that last longer. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And if you think about most of the people you know, what clothes do they wear every day? And I'm talking in the before times, certainly with the pandemic, what clothes do they wear every day? And, you know, I have friends. Actually, I, I just realized that I was looking at some photos from Spain of Brent Bookwalter skiing, and he was wearing a Kitsbo hoodie. <laughs> and I was just chuckling because I don't know how many times I've seen him off the bike wearing a Kitsbo hoodie. And everyone who owns, I, everyone I know anyway, who owns Kitsbo hoodie, they like never take them off. They're merino and they're super tough. So they don't really wear out. They look pretty good two or three years in and they're cozy. They're almost a fleece feel on the inside. There are plenty of hoodies to buy. I, I, I'm sure there's some hoodies that are as good as the Kitsbo ones, but, but I, I haven't seen them yet. And so on the one hand, wow, that's an expensive hoodie. But on the other hand, if it's one of those items of clothes you wear all the time because it's comfortable and you think you look good in it, like how many hoodies do you need to own? I mean, at this point, I don't have any more sweatshirts. I just have two Kitsbo hoodies. One's black, one's navy. And that's it. <laughs> so the, the closet is smaller. And I know a lot of customers who are definitely down for that. They may own five different pairs of jeans, but there's one that they usually wear. And so... You know, uh, the Con Marie approach, okay, get rid of the other four jeans. They're just taking up space. So I, I think that we're moving to that. And, and I will concede that, you know, the first five years of Kitsbo, most of the customers were, were in a place where they could afford the Kitsbo gear. And today we have many customers that own one or two items and they didn't make it an impulse buy. They thought about it for a long time before before they spent that much money on whatever it was, bib shorts, mountain bike shorts, even a tech tee. Um, and they wear it all the time. So I do think there's a segment of our world that is coming back to value. And uh, one of the things we talk about in sustainability is even if the cost to the planet is horrific of making our pair of shorts, if our pair of shorts last you twice as long, it means we've cut your impact and the impact we're making on the planet in half if it lasts twice as long. If, if we make it last three times as long as the other brand, well, then we've, we've cut the impact to the planet by 66%. These aren't small per percentages. These are sweeping cuts. You, um, you repair clothing that has been sold and worn for some period of time as, as well, don't you? We do. And we like to, <laughs> we like to send out emails and put it on social because, you know, there's usually a story behind, you know, how that shirt or short got its tear. We can't fix everything. Some things are unfixable, um, but we will fix them. And, you know, if it's our fault, of course, it's free. If it's your fault because you crashed, um, there might be a small fee for the repair or, or there might not. Um, customer experiences are, are customer support people. They have a wide degree of discretion for what to do there. And if it really can't be replaced, we're going to find another way to get you back in, in Kitsbo. Um, and we're believers in this. We don't make any money on the repairs uh, because it just makes good common sense. Why throw it out if, if a repair can make it usable again? And like I said, you know, then, then you've got bragging rights. And I guess if you are really are kind of going over the, going after this 
kind of long-term play. I mean, people do, you know, we, you know, we develop emotional bonds with certain pieces of clothing, right? So totally. if, you, if you have something that you've worn day in, day out for five, six years or something like that, and then, you know, you crash, you wear a hole in the elbow, whatever, something like that, like you don't want to throw it away, right? Like you, I, I, I would have to think that those people would be pretty excited at the idea of getting their favorite thing repaired and returned back to them so that they can continue to use it and love it, right? Yeah, we get a lot of love notes uh, based on that. Um, I, I want to point out another another thing ab about making, you know, actually sewing in America um, and doing it one at a time, which is it is no big deal for us to repair your Kitzbo. There's even a pretty good chance we still have the material. <laughs> so every other brand, <laughs> right, the other 98% of the revenue in America – that stuff got made somewhere else. It's not like they have easy access to extra fabric of the same color. It's not like they even know how to make it. Right. So since they didn't make it and they, they didn't design the construction methodology of making it, they have to find people who can repair it, who can, you know, improvise. And we're, we're not doing that. I mean, we've, we've got the same thread collar. And, you know, every once in a while, it's something that is so old, we really don't have that. Or the sun has changed the hue of the color. But... Uh, most of the time, yeah, we're set. It's just part of our business. I, I would say, again, coming back to this to this motivation thing, from a consumer standpoint, again, assu assuming you have you have the luxury of being able to spend that much money on something, it, it does seem like a pretty straightforward argument. Um, however, you do still have to you do still have to make that argument to a lot of people who might look at you know, like you said, you're like that that icon flannel shirt that you that you have. Um, it, it is wool, wool, wool garments are always more expensive than like a synthetic or cotton or something like that. But it is also quite a lot of money. I think it was, what, what was it? 280 US or something like that. Um, so how often are you in a position where you feel like you have to, I mean, I guess, how do you justify or how do you make that argument to people who look at that and just think like, that's crazy. I'm never going to spend that much money for something like that. Well, yeah, I run into this every time I see my friends wearing the competition. I run into this one. My family isn't wearing our stuff. And I'm like, hey, what's the story? And they're like, yeah, it's so expensive. So I think that um, our experience has been, and customers tell us this all the time, our experience is, is that once someone has worn it, then it becomes the kind of thing that they'll buy for themselves once or twice a year. So it's the the value has to be experienced. It cannot really be explained. Now our marketing team is trying to explain it pretty much every day in social or email or in other mediums. But it really has to, you have to wear it. And and that is a significant challenge. Let's remember we're trying to sell clothes over the internet. <laughs> like how does that even work? Like what's my <laughs> right. size? Right. How's it going to feel? How could it possibly be worth that? And then when they put it on, they're like, oh, <laughs> I got to tell you, I've just seen that over and over and over or heard about it afterwards. They're like, I thought it was a lot of money. And I put it on and wow. And the other one is, uh, that's my, that's my wife's shirt. That's my husband's favorite shirt. Could you please make another color? I'm tired of seeing <laughs> that one. Right. So it's it's really it's sort of like uh, when I tried to learn how to snowboard um, in the in the 90s, it was pretty grim. There were like, I don't know, three trips to the resort and uh, the day would end with me getting back on skis. It was just so frustrating. And then <laughs> and then, you know, the fourth time I got some expert instruction and it popped and I, you know, I linked turns to the bottom of the lift. And and that's the way it's been ever since on the snowboard. I'm not a great snowboarder, but you know, it just had this incredible steep learning curve. And then there's an inflection point and there you go, like the turns. And I, I kind of think about it that way. And I think, um, I think that that's an unusual experience for people with clothes. We're all like experts in the clothes we like to wear because we've all been wearing clothes our whole life. Maybe at age four, we start choosing what we're going to, what we're going to wear. So, um, to, to really try something different that has that friction of being expensive, let alone you're looking at a website instead of trying it on in a store, that's a tough hill to climb. Yeah. And I guess people are notoriously, uh, uh, I guess, 
challenged in terms of thinking long term too, and we, not even just in terms of purposes, oh, right. but we yeah. see that we no, see this, that sort of thing for everything. I'm not going to die from this cigarette. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, so that is certainly one challenge, just the cost aspect of things. But then there's also the the the, the delay. So as I was saying earlier, you, know, you have a couple of you have a couple of items that are available to ship pretty quickly. Um, you know, I guess they're, they're just a small handful that are like one to two days, and there are other ones that are like two weeks, something like that. But as everything you're saying, is everything is documented right in the website, and it's constantly updated, so you can see within the within the accuracy of about a week. Um, and that's because uh, it's sort of a detail, but on the manufacturing floor, um, products are grouped. So even though there might only be um, an order for 10 shorts this time of year, there might be um, 200 orders for pants. And the pants and the shorts are made by the same sewers. So um, that's why we give that, that accuracy down to weeks. I think, I think there's a good chance that um, next year, not 2022, but 2023, we'll have enough sewers that not only will it be mostly short, a week or two, but um, we'll probably have it measured in granularity of days. How many days will you wait? Um, it is also possible that with enough sewers in place, we would we would make a little bit ahead. But the day we do that is going to be a very important day because now we're falling into what the rest of the industry does. So I, I wouldn't count on that. Um, I mean, the fact that you have, again, the, you have to make the make the play that or make this make the argument that your items are worth the amount that you're asking for them. But then you also on top of that have to make the argument that they're worth waiting as long as people currently have to right now. Um, so is that is that a is that a bigger challenge? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think it's good or bad. It's not even the case that this is a demographic discussion. It's context. So. You know, I run into this uh, almost every time I go shopping for food. Do they have the oat milk my wife prefers? And if they don't, I buy the other brand. And she says, oh, I guess they didn't have our brand. <laughs> but it's not like she's going to like, yeah, I'm thinking I'm going to skip coffee because I couldn't get the oat milk that I wanted. So the context is it's important, but it's not, it's not a deal breaker. Now, when I bought my truck, I ordered what I wanted and I waited nine weeks, 10. And that was in the before times. And I complained about it bitterly to anyone who would listen, but I absolutely did it because I wanted specific features that you can't get from a truck off the lot. So I think it really depends on the context. If, if I rip my only pair of mountain biking shorts and I've got a trip to go mountain biking in Utah next week, Kitspo is not going to help me. Got to have shorts, and I got to have them tomorrow. So um, on the other hand, you know, if I never fit right in shorts except for the Kitsbo shorts because I figured out over time which exact size to order from Kitsbo, then I'm going to maybe plan ahead and make sure I always have two or three of those Kitsbo shorts in rotation. And that's the behavior we see from customers. After they wear it the first time, then they start planning for it, and they make sure they have enough. And they know that it's going to last. So even with all the all the headwinds and stuff that you have faced, uh, I, I guess both pre-pandemic and in the last couple of years, it does seem like overall it's it's seems like it's working out because, as you said, the company is still continuing to grow. Things seem to be going in a pretty good direction. You said earlier that you certainly have issues with this being scalable, just in the sense that there are simply not enough people who have the training and the, the, the technical skill to just kind of jump in and, and start working. But how, how scalable is this? I mean, is this something that really can grow a fair bit? Um, and I guess looking even further out, is this something that you think other apparel brands might follow suit in? Oh, I know they will. They're already coming and touring to see how we do it. And, you know, initially I was like, I'm not going to show the competitors how to do this. And uh, Xander Nossler, the founder, put me right. And he said, Toyota always allowed GM to come see, right? I mean, this stuff's hard. Come on in. And the more people know how to do this, the better it is for the ecosystem anyway. So we already have other brands coming to look. And we uh, are very open to that. In fact, anyone who's listening to this right now wants to see how it's done, 
come to North Carolina and we'll give you a tour. We'll show you exactly how we do it. Yeah, I mean, you advertise the tours right, right on your website. Absolutely. Um, we, we think that like this is good for the planet. It doesn't really matter what the use model is for the apparel and which brand it is. We should all be doing it this way. I personally wish that, you know, Walmart had some high quality items in it, not just value. Um, I know plenty of people who are not wealthy and carefully buy their clothes, their vehicles, their bicycles. How many people do you know who can't really afford a $5,000 bicycle and have three of them? Plenty. So it's, it, it's about context. And we think we're not going to sell to everybody, but there's a lot of folks that want this. Interesting. It's, I mean, it's a fascinating story. It, it's a fascinating thing to watch from afar. Um, and it is certainly really fascinating just to kind of see how this sort of, how this sort of philosophy has really kind of expanded. And, and again, certainly not just in apparel, but it's a, it's a sort of thing that I'm seeing a lot in, in hard goods as well. Um, especially with all the issues that people are having with international shipping and stuff. Like it's almost seems like, it almost seemed like that that idea, that desire has been there for quite a long time. And some of the things that have happened over the last couple of years have only just accelerated the motivation to kind of get it, get it started again. Well, not to be too crass, but, you know, do you want to be waiting until your um, online discount cycling supplier finally gets the items that you want that have been sitting in a container somewhere on an ocean from Asia to here for the last six months? Or do you want to wait eight weeks for us to make you exactly what you want, exactly in the size and color that you want? oh yeah, all your dollars are going to go into American pockets if you buy from us. That's the trade-off. And I think there can be some nationalism there. That's not really, we don't play to that. And that's, that's not really what we mean when we say sewn in USA. But we do believe, especially now as a public benefit corporation, we believe part of our mission is taking money out of the pockets of smart customers and putting it in the pockets of skilled artisans in North Carolina and doing it over and over again. They get great clothes. North Carolina has an economy and that they can come meet the people who made their clothes, like for reals, in person. Has, when, when someone gets a, an item of Kitsbo clothing, does it come with like a little tag signed by the person who made, the, made that garment? You know, I had to start educating people that it's, it's not a quality control card. It's a, it's a pride card. So because multiple people touch each finished apparel item, they each initial a card. It's a compostable card um, that goes with their, their apparel. So they can see how many people worked on their apparel because there's two or three or four people in the cutting process and the pre-assembly. And then there are multiple people who do each part of the sewing. So, Although we make one item at a time, um, it is not made by one person. It's typically made by between two and four people. So, for instance, the Icon shirt requires 45 different sewing machines and 90 discrete construction steps. Whoa! There's only three, there's only three people in the building who have memorized all 90. There's not enough time during, during the actual make process to go look at a three-ring binder or call up a construction detail on a screen that would slow things down too much. So it's all in their head. These folks are not sitting at a sewing machine. They're walking from machine to machine to machine. So typically, if, if you are a very good sewer and you've done great on some of the other products, we're gonna promote you into the Icon line and you're gonna work at the first five sewing machines. And so you'll pick up a, a tray of parts and use machine number one to do a couple of things. Then you'll move to machine number two to do a couple of things. And if you've gone through about five machines, you'll leave the tray for your colleague. You'll go back and start another tray. Meanwhile, the second maker picks up that tray because they've been there longer and they, they know how to do the first five machines and the second five machines. And by that point, they've probably learned the, the third set of five machines. And there are nine sets of five machines to get to a finished shirt. Now, it, it is going to take, we track all this stuff meticulously, of course, it's going to take about two and a half hours to make that shirt from that first machine to the 45th machine. So 
those, those people are all going to initial that card. I mean, that thing is a work of art. And, and the people who are doing the sewing, it's not just sewing. It's more like when you call an electrician to modify the, how the lights work in your house. They have to know all about electricity. They have to know about the principles of electricity. They got to figure out what you got. Then they got to come up with a solution for moving the light switch or installing the outlet or hanging the new light. And then they have to execute it. And that's what our folks do every day. And that's why we pay them more. In Vietnam, that expert sewer, they're going to sew 300 left sleeves, probably on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday before they move on to a different task. It's not cleaning chicken, but it's not free from repetitive stress syndrome. I mean, I, I, I guess I, I dare say that it, it almost makes it seem like some of this stuff should be more expensive than, right? I, you know, Filson sells a, a wool jacket shirt similar to the Icon for $500. And my understanding is they can't keep them in stock. So there you go. In fact, I think our Coleman Valley bibs, we, I, think, I think they're priced dramatically lower than the market. So I'm not going to mention the other brand names, but just get on, get on their websites and Google their, um, you know, Google their, their, their prices and look at the ones that aren't discounted at the premium lines with the same kind of features and the exact same chamois that we use. And um, you'll see that the Coleman Valley bibs are a deal. Oh yeah. And made here in America. Well, David, I will say that I, I am really, I'm really excited that you all are doing this uh, for for a wide variety of reasons. Again, like it's not like a nationalism thing or anything like that. I, I think it's just really cool that that you're that you're going this route for for cycling apparel. I think it's really awesome. I think it's super admirable and obviously quite difficult. Um, and I really hope that that this is wildly successful moving forward. I really do. Um, I guess. Well, I guess we'll just kind of continue to to sit sit back and and see and cross our fingers and hope that this continues to work out and then hope that this is a trend that uh, I guess spreads throughout the industry because there clearly are a lot of benefits to it. Oh, it's definitely a journey. I mean, it's we're we're on a journey and um, and I do think it's it's about valuing the humans that create stuff in our world and um, you know as a footnote I'll just say I'm not a clothes guy. And I don't know how to sew. And that's not why I'm here. I'm here for the humans. Well, that sounds like a good note to end on there, David. I think, as I said, I'm super excited to hear about what you're doing. Uh, one of these days, hopefully, if I'm ever in the area, I'd love to go for a tour. I'd love to take you up on that. Uh, we would love to show it to you. Well, great. David, thank you so much for your time. I hope uh, everyone listening has, has learned quite a lot. I hope, hope they've kind of opened their eyes a little bit to, to a different way of doing things. And hopefully, you know, if we can get people even just a little bit, little by little to, to think longer term, that certainly is not a bad thing at all. Not for the planet, not for the people. Thank you very much. Hopefully, hopefully we'll chat again soon. 